Welcome. This is Cascade Church Portland's podcast. We exist to invite all people to join us as we follow Jesus together in bringing heaven to earth. All right. So this morning, we are continuing on in our message series uh, that we talked about this last week. Uh, We're going through the book of Numbers Uh, as most of us are familiar with. And if that fills you with dread and apprehension, don't leave, don't leave, don't leave. Uh, This is fun. One of the things that we talked about last week is... because of a particular translation of the Bible uh, called the Septuagint, that's where it got the name Numbers. But in the original Hebrew, the name of the book is Bemidbar, which translates to in the desert of. And so this is a book about the Israelite people who have left slavery in Egypt, and they're in this desert wilderness experience en route going to the promised land. And that journey ultimately takes them 38 years, and lots of incredible things happen in that space, in that 38-year period, and we want to talk about it. Now, the reason why we want to talk about it isn't just purely historical, but we actually think it has lots of correlations to your life here and now. And here's why. The In the Desert Experience, in the wilderness, using the story that, uh, of numbers, is they're not where they used to be. They're not in Egypt anymore, but they're not yet to the promised land. And so what they were comfortable with, what they knew, even though it was slavery, and don't let that point slip away, (laughs) there's so many times in our lives we get used to slavery and we become comfortable with it, not because it's nice or good or happy, but because it's known. We know how to suffer here and that has a certain kind of value. And we become freed from whatever that thing that was. It may not even be bad, but the the way that we knew life, that kind of comfort level is gone. And we know there's something else coming, but we're in between. And you can be in between in relationships. You can be in between in your family dynamic and relationship, where you knew who you were as a child or interacting in your family in a particular way, and then something happens some catastrophic shift, you have a walking through of the Dead Sea, and now I know that our family dynamic won't be like this forever, but it's in between. Or you might be in a job situation where you knew the job, you were working in this place, you kind of like, you knew where all the restrooms were, and then something shifts. Either you have another opportunity or there's a change in the corporation and you're laid off and you don't know what the next thing will be. What we want to do, and this is important, we don't want to call the wilderness or the desert good. That's not the new value. It's not the new promised land. But we want to say, but it's not all bad. And what are the questions? And Scott and I co-taught this last week. Scott brought up, what are the things that I can only learn in this space? The goal, and we're going to talk about this more today, for all of life, is how are we present to the life we are living today And how do we pick up the lessons that God has for us in this space? Because so much of our time, like the Israelites in the story, are living in the past or hoping and living in the future. And to say that that ultimately we miss out on the presence of God. And just spoiler alert, the Israelites in the desert had God appear to them in a cloud during the day fire at night. God brings water from rocks. 
God delivers them food every single day in the morning. The very presence of God exists in this tabernacle that they are carrying around with them. God physically speaks to Moses and he brings down commandments on tablets that were made by God. The presence of God is clearly illustrated in the wilderness. But if they were just hoping to go back to Egypt or they were just waiting to go to the promised land, they would have missed it. And so how are we present to that reality? Okay, woo, I got excited. That might've just been for me. So some context. Thank you, Linda. Some context. The who wrote this? Um, It's written written by Moses-ish. And what we mean by that is the first five books of the Bible are all assigned to Moses. uh, And we believe that he certainly wrote down a lot of it, but there are so many people that came after him. And one of my favorite verses in Numbers is uh, Numbers 12.3. And it's all in parentheses. It says, Moses was very humble, the most humble person in the whole world, Um, (laughs) which is just great. I kind of want Moses to have written that. just for the lack of awareness. I'm more humble than most people. Um, (laughs) But it's very likely that lots of scribes are filling this in and they're taking teachings of Moses and other things and they're writing around it. Um, Because there's even some things uh, that later in these books that are ascribed to Moses that happen after the time he would have been alive. So uh, when we say yes, we believe it is assigned to Moses. He's certainly the one that is writing this down, but it's very much elaborated on by other people that were around him at the time. And I already talked about the context. They've left the promised land. I mean, they've left Egypt and they're going to the promised land. To kind of get into that space one more time, because we're going to dive into a story that happens right at the beginning of this. Imagine for a second that you had... You had food, you had shelter, sure, slavery, but you also had some kind of protection. You knew that because you were valuable as a slave, you were protected by one of the largest military superpowers of the day in the Egyptian government. So there was a kind of security that you had. And if you were as a group of hundreds of thousands of people, not 50, not 100, Lots and lots of human beings. Where's the last place that you would move to make a go of it? The desert. The wilderness. There's nothing there. Um, If you were looking to survive, if we were to take this congregation and we were to just double it over and over and over again until we get the size of the Israelite nation, we wouldn't say, hey, let's go to the high desert, like Eastern Oregon. Let's go out there and really make a run of it here in Oregon. We would pick somewhere close to water. You would pick somewhere close to the ability to survive and have things. So for the Israelites, um, one of the, the ways that this is taught or interpreted is you're like, what are they so upset about? They're not slaves anymore but they're missing something. And to wake up every day and to just look at the horizon and see nothing but sand is not a comforting feeling. Actually, slavery can feel far more comforting than that. And let's just talk for a second. We're not just talking about Israelites right now. When you're in your own wilderness time, I don't care how bad the relationship you used to be a part of was, The wilderness experience, looking at an empty and blank horizon can make you want to go back. I don't care how bad the last job you had was, looking at an empty horizon makes you want to go back. We're the Israelites, folks. 
And if we laugh at them and mock them, and how silly are these people? We miss all of the lessons. We miss all of the good stuff that's there. So uh, one last note is literally every thought I'm about to share with you, I mean, that's not fully true, but most of them are from this book, uh, Bewilderments. Um, and it's by Aviva Gottlieb Zornberg. It's amazing. And it's been an incredible book. Um, so if you're interested in reading more about this and reading ahead and knowing what I'm about to say before I say it, that would be the book to grab. Okay. So starting at the beginning of Numbers, we have a census. And when I thought of this census, I thought, uh, if you've ever been to uh, Costco, and you know, like, you're going, you've already, like, driven around the parking lot for 45 minutes, but you're finally entering at some point. And you go and you get your card. What do you, your cart, what do you have to do before you go in? You got to show that card. Man, they're all over you. You got to show your card to get in. You got to give it to them at the checkout counter, and they got to slash your receipt when you go. I mean, I don't know who's gaming the Costco system, but they are working really hard to make sure you don't. And after you show your card and they smile and make eye contact... Uh, Do you ever notice what they do? They have a little clicker. They're just clicking numbers all day long. And there's something about that. When I thought of a a census, I thought of that experience. You may have never noticed it. You may never think about it. But there's something about that that's always felt very dehumanizing to me. That at the end of the day, I am smiling. I'm a human. Here's a thing. I have driven here. I've had a day. Here's my card. And they go, yes. But for the purposes of Costco, click. This is what you need to be to us today. We're just going to put this ultimately in a numbers column. And so when I first thought that this is, we are out in the wilderness. This is the first thing that God invites the people to do. And it feels a bit like, click. I just want to make sure we get our numbers right. Um, You know, if we lose anybody, it'd be good to go back to our spreadsheets and just see who did we lose, where did they go. There's a part of it where it feels very utilitarian. It feels kind of dehumanizing and secondary. But what I want to look at is if we read it one more time and then we kind of look a little bit about what is going on here, I think there's a different story that the census is trying to tell. So in Numbers 1, verses 1 and 2, this is what it says. This is how the book opens. The Lord spoke to Moses in the tent of meeting in the desert of Sinai on the first day of the second month of the second year after the Israelites came out of Egypt. He said, take a census of the whole Israelite community by their clans and families, listing every man by name, one by one. Uh, And one thing to acknowledge here is because I went in multiple different places. Uh, There's a lot of times in the Bible where the masculine pronoun is always used, and that is uh, due to culture and cultural interpretations that are put back on the Bible. A lot of times they'll say person, but for years and years, it is, it's all male. It's all, uh, but for this one in particular, this reflects their system where they were just counting the males. They were just counting the men. And one of the reasons why I want to, to talk about that is, one, the numbers that they count, there are way more people than the numbers come out as because they're just counting the men. And so there's a reflection of many women and children are there. And also... it's helpful to acknowledge that the Bible comes from a patriarchal time. That was its culture and context. And when I say patriarchy, what I mean is everything is counted and listed under male leadership and male household. 
Um, and this is actually a theme we're going to look at in Numbers. Traditionally, before this book is written, all property would have been handed over to the male, the first male son born. This is not God's best. This isn't God's created system where he says men are more important than women, and so everybody fall in line. But it is a reflection of the day. And when we start to acknowledge that and start to bring it up, we can say, and what is God doing through this cultural system to actually raise the value of each and every person? That there's a humanity in each and every person that's there. We don't want to whitewash it and ignore that this came from a patriarchal culture, but we also don't want to stop there and say, and that's the best it ever was. Let's keep on going with that. So this is a counting of every single person. Now, the word that is used here in Hebrew, and I won't even try to pronounce it, for census, and it's used 20 different times throughout the Old Testament. What's interesting about it is it's tied to this other word that's used a number of times that talks about tallying up everyone we lost in battle. So when they would have a battle, when there would be a war, everyone who died, they would count up and say, who's missing? Counting who is is tied to the same term of let's count who's missing. And what I love about this is if you think about a chair, um, if you had, if you grew up at home and you had meals of any sort around a dinner table, at least in our family, when my sister wasn't there for that meal, we didn't sit in that chair and we didn't take that chair away from the table. It just sat empty. And I don't know that there's any profound meaning in that besides laziness. Like, I don't know. I don't want to move the chair. But what's profound about that empty chair is that empty chair was reminding, it was a visual reminder all throughout the meal that there's someone who's not here. It wasn't just there's an empty space here. That's weird. It was our sister who is a part of this family isn't here right now. There's a way where you can look at a census and say it's a dehumanizing, just counting of numbers. But in fact, this was to humanize the numbers. More than just say there are X amount of people, we want to put names to every number and be aware of who is here among us. Because every person matters. We're not just a group. There is a family that God is creating. And I think that's more important in our culture today than maybe it even was there. We live in a culture where in some ways we just get rid of the chairs when the people go. What does it mean to hold space for the presence of an individual when they're not with us, when they're no longer there and we feel that? What I love about this is that God is inviting in a practice of presence we are going to be present with one another. We're going to acknowledge that presence matters. And when there's an absence, we're going to acknowledge that too. And it becomes even more important when the numbers get big and overwhelming. Part of the reason why I bring this up is that the promises of God, starting with Abraham and moving through his kids on down until we have this huge nation, is one day your descendants will be more than all the sand on the ground, on the beach more than the stars in the sky. This is the size of this family that God is building up. And there's a part of that that's exciting when you're Abraham. I'm going to be responsible for all of this. 
But when you're a part of that on the other side, there's something where you feel a bit lost. And one of the things that uh, I think is interesting is when you look at the Hubble telescope that went out, this incredible work to like, let's start mapping the universe. It's mind boggling. So did you know that in the Milky Way galaxy, that's where we live, there are 400 billion suns in the Milky Way galaxy, which would break down to the entire population of Earth, roughly 60 suns per person. For every human being on the Earth, think about this when you're in traffic next time. That will contextualize a little bit. For every person on Earth, and really, however much traffic there is here, there are many other parts of the world along the equator that are far more populated. Every person on Earth in our galaxy, 60 suns. And I like to say suns more than stars because stars are like distant and the sun is like the thing with which we live and survive in our proximity. 60 of those for every person. Now what the Hubble telescope zoomed out and told us is that there's actually um, the number of galaxies that exist. So if you were to zoom out and you look at there would be equivalent of nine galaxies per person on Earth. You can assign one person to nine galaxies, and the Milky Way has 400 billion stars, but that's actually high. If you were to average them all out, you would get about 100 billion stars per galaxy, or 900 billion suns per person. <laughs> and this is what I love. When you get to that level of complexity, I can't even handle the concept of a billion. A million escapes me. A million of anything escapes me, but a billion is just a big number that I assign to money that some people in our country have. 900 billion sons per person on earth. And then we have this verse. Jesus talks about this in Luke 12. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, yet not one of them is forgotten by God? Indeed, the very hairs on your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid. You're worth more than, that, than many sparrows. We, get, we zoom out to something big and overwhelming where we look and we just shrug our shoulders. Not many of you are likely to go home and count someone's hairs. You're like, look, I love you. I don't care that much. And yet when God looks at incredible complexity and all of these things, God doesn't look at them like another clicker on the Costco entrance. God is present with us because each and every one of these numbers has a name and they matter. The point of the census is pulling in our presence with one another. God is inviting us to be present with one another. Do we see one another? Do we matter? And do we hold the space when one of us is absent? My hope in this, when you read about a census in numbers, is you would know your infinite worth to God. Your infinite worth to God. God cares about you, values you, sees you. And anything that we do where we say, I don't know, like, what do my problems matter? Maybe they don't from your lens, and that's okay but they matter from God's lens because God's told us they matter. Because God has come near and says, your presence counts. 
I actually think that being present with one another and being present here in this room is a holy and sacred act of worship. That's why I think you coming on a Sunday morning isn't like, it's church, you're supposed to, or you go to hell. It's a sacred act of worship to show up, to be present with one another. How many of you have seen Harry Potter or read the books? Okay, good, 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 good. Uh, How many of you are familiar with Horcruxes? Okay, a little bit of deep dive. We're going to talk about Horcruxes uh, in church because that's what you came here for. Uh, (laughs) Thank you, Scott. So if you are unfamiliar, um, Voldemort, who is this evil wizard, he's the villain throughout the books, so we find out through incredible evil magic that he uses and usually can only be connected with when you've taken the life of another person, you actually fragment off a piece of your soul and you put it into a physical object. And that is where your soul is held. And in the book, if we have the image, these, are, these represent the six different horcruxes of Voldemort. And this is what's interesting. These horcruxes make him immortal in a sense, that no longer is his very essence held in his body. You can strike down his body, but what's weird is these aspects of his soul now get linked into physical things that until these things are destroyed, Voldemort cannot be. And the reason why I bring up horcruxes is I think that concept is so fascinating to fragment our souls I think there's a a part where through life and through the trauma of life and when things happen that are really painful, sometimes we know we're doing it and sometimes we're surviving and we do it. But we fragment parts of our souls and we put them into certain places and certain times, even into certain people as a form of protection. And what's also interesting is I I think there's ways and spaces where in our own lives we disinvite God to certain aspects of our soul, of our life, of our essence, of who we are. And when we do that, when we disinvite God from parts of our lives, um, I think what, what I grew up with is this idea that God is just like a really nosy neighbor, Like he's Kramer from Seinfeld and he just wants to burst into every room without knocking every time and to say, what what are you, what are you doing in there? Why'd you keep me out of here? Why why are you trying to lock the door? And maybe you grew up in that house. We don't lock doors in this house. That that is ultimately Father God. Whereas opposed to, I think we disinvite God from spaces because we know there's an aspect of our own soul we're fragmenting. I think God cares far more about this. And the reason why I bring up this kind of soul fragmentation is there's this other story in Numbers uh, early on that's challenging and difficult. They give instructions where they say that if a husband, and remember, we're in patriarchy. We're in this kind of male-dominated thing. So we need to be aware of that as we hear this story. If a husband becomes suspicious that his wife is having an affair or is in adultery, then you send the wife to the priest. And at the priest, she is given an opportunity to confess, to say, this is this thing that is happening. And the reason why I talk about horcruxes is the way what I'm describing is this is a part of my soul that I've, I've fragmented. 
And while we're looking at this through the lens of, of a woman accused, I think we also know that in every case of adultery, there's another person represented there. That this isn't a solo act. Someone else's very soul has been fragmented. And there's an opportunity before the priest to confess. And then it's this strange process where the words are written on a scroll and water is used to wash those words away. And then they're captured again in this bitter waters. And the woman is invited to drink the bitter waters. And if she is in fact not uh, having adultery, she's only been assumed or accused of it, she walks out fine in perfect health. But if she is lying, if there's a fragmentation of her soul, she becomes ill. She actually brings in this bitterness. I really struggled with that story. Because there's all kinds of weirdness there. That all it takes is the accusation of one marital partner and this one of the husband to the wife of, I don't trust you, so go to the priest and present yourself. But what I think is there, the, the truth that exists in that story is that adultery in and of itself, and I think it extends to there's lots of other behaviors where it require for us to do them, there's a fragmentation of our very selves to do them. It wouldn't be adultery if it was out in the open and everyone knew about it. It would be something different. This requires secret. This requires hiding. And I think the hiding isn't just from everybody else, but it has to first start with a hiding from ourself. Am I afraid to acknowledge my dissatisfaction? Am I afraid to acknowledge the part of myself that is not doing well in this relationship? And I think it can be reflected in both partners. And so there's a part of ourselves where to say, I need to step into this place. It's for my very own survival. And so God, you are disinvited. I'm creating this space of absence in my life. And what I think is beautiful, if there can be beauty in this action or this, this the telling of the story, it's an invitation for honesty. It's an invitation to deal with the fragmentation of ourselves because God is inviting us not to absence from ourselves or from one another, or certainly absence from God, but presence. God meets us in presence. God meets us in honesty. God ultimately did not create us for horcruxes, but created us to be whole people that we don't injure ourselves and others around us by creating this fragmentation of ourselves, but by being honest. And honesty always has to start with ourselves before it extends to others. If you start to realize that you have been lying to people around you, usually the right question to ask is, how have I been lying to myself? It's a good place to, to come back to. Absence is a path to dis dissociation. 
And when we've created these kind of absences where we kind of step out of our lives and we step out of our reality, when we stop being present with ourselves at all moments, we start to dissociate. We start to create these horcruxes. We start to fragment our soul and kind of pass it around for the aspect of survival. And one of the things I think is really telling, and we're going to do an exercise later, is to acknowledge where are the places that I've been absent. Presence is hard and difficult. This week, um, you know, you learn a lot about yourself from the things that kids will say about you because uh, they're not trying to be polite, which is quite beautiful. <laughs> this week, my son was over at grandma's house and um, he was like, Grandma, will you play with me? And she's like, Grandma's relaxing in the pool right now. <laughs> and grandma really enjoyed telling my wife and I that, that then my son said, oh, when mommy and daddy want to relax, they're on their phones. <laughs> and w what's true there is there's this kind of heavy and overwhelming, and then you feel, and there's this place of absence at times with my kids, because I, I can't do it. The, the task of being present is too much in that moment. I have to go live in a story about something that's happening far away. I love to escape in the stories of sports. I mean, where will LeBron James go? Am I right? Because to think about that means I don't have to be here. Because when I'm here, I have to check in. When I'm here, I have to be aware of what's happening in me and what's happening around me. And I have to ask questions like, why am I being irritated? I don't want to do that. I'd rather hit the ejector seat for a little bit. And so the question for us is, where are we absent? Because the places where we're absent, which, let's just say this for a second. It's okay to check out from time to time. Life does not require 100% presence all the time. We, we can't do that. But my invitation for you is, could you be aware of when you're being absent? Could you choose those places? Because if we don't choose, absences will choose us, and usually in moments and places and with people we don't want to be absent for. How is God calling and inviting us to this kind of presence? I want to read um, a quote from Zornberg. If we could move forward, Elvin. I'm sorry, I'm jumping a couple. This is what she says about this confession, talking about the story that I love. To confess is to tell a story of fragmentation. It's to put on display that divided place where God is asked to absent himself. The fragmented consciousness that has made God effectively meaningless in the world now has two options before it. To speak itself without shame. And that's her emphasis, not mine or to swallow the bitter waters, to suppress the madness of the moment so that it finds expression only in the toxic language of the body. I invite you to sit with that quote for a bit. The beginning of the story of Numbers is God inviting them to be present with one another, to stand up and be counted so that your absence is noted when you're not here. And there are times where all of us are absent, where we're just trying to withdraw, where we're not, we don't want to be around anymore. We've invited God out of aspects of our lives, and we've invited ourselves out of aspects of our lives, where we're showing up, but we're on autopilot. Confession, which is a, it's a churchy word. 
This is kind of the place, like the judicial system in church. This is where we talk about confession. But confession isn't to hang a scarlet letter around our own necks. I think the origination of confession isn't to say, share the shame that we all assume about you, but we just haven't been able to identify yet. It's not to say you are the place that you have disinvited God from, but rather it's to reintegrate ourselves. It's to bring the fragments back together because God created us to be whole and he has things for us in our wholeness. One of the things I've been really struck with this week is God only shows up in the present. God doesn't show up in our past. God doesn't show up in our future. God shows up and meets us in our present. And God can inform our future and God can help us reinterpret our past, but only in the present. God's invitation through confession to be present with one another and be present with ourselves is for blessing, not curse. And I think we avoid presence with one another because we're afraid that's the place we're going to be cursed and condemned. That's the place where the scarlet letter is going to hang. That's the place where we're going to find out that we aren't a soul worth unfragmenting. My hope for you this morning is that you would come running into presence with yourself and with God because you know that it is a place of safety, it is a place of love, and while it may be hard and challenging to come back into yourself, that is ultimately good. This is where God seeks to see you and to love you and to be with you. So I handed out those cards, and I'd love for you to grab those cards now. Hopefully you have pencils out in front of you. You can grab one or you're, you're amazing and you brought your own. Here, here's what I'd like you to write down on that card. As an act of corporate confession, and let me just say, if you're sitting around people and you're like, these people are nosy, they're going to read my card, use coded language. <laughs> you write down whatever it is that you need to write, and it can be something that just you know. But I want you to write down where are the, confess the places that you have been absent. I've been absent in this time in my life. As I look back over my last week, these are the places where I've been absent. These are the places where I've checked out. These are the places where I haven't been fully there. Because I think God creates us for presence and we can disintegrate into absence and confession is our road back to presence. Confession is inviting us back to be whole, to bring all the pieces of ourselves back together. So I'm going to give you some time to write now.